thank you very much for coming. Um, we hopefully this will be both exciting and uh, engaging. Um, I guess first question is, um, are we in the end times? Hmm? Who knows? Who knows? Yes. Huh? We're in the birth. So now we're going to use a biblical metaphor. Dun 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 dun. What else? Anyone? Huh? Maybe. Maybe. Israel did become a nation in 1948. So uh, I think that's that seems to be the question of the day, right? Um, welcome. And it, to to pose this question in church is almost dangerous, frankly. Um, you've got views all over the map um, in terms of kind of where where what people think and um, and why, uh, and sometimes that can even be confusing. Um, and so I hope um, in the four little sessions we have together uh, that what we'll do is explore um, the Bible uh, and Christian thought um, in order to kind of solidify for you what is most basic, what is most fundamental, and then other areas that are uh, perhaps negotiable. Um, you, if you've been at Rock Point very long, you've probably heard Ron's um, uh, I don't know whether I want to call it an analogy or uh, Ron distinguishes between scriptural teachings that are descriptive and that are prescriptive, meaning uh, there are sometimes things that are described and sometimes things that are prescribed. And uh, among those um, that are described, am I am I rushing? I think you've got I, I, It's amazing. Welcome. Um, among those uh, things that are prescribed, the Bible seems to be clear about a number of things, but there are other things that the Bible isn't as clear about. Um, and so what I hope to do is, uh, through our time together, to tonight kind of set out the issues. We're going to have, uh, I'll introduce you to um, some of the things that we'll be discussing, uh, some of the issues that are in play, um, We'll talk a little bit about interpretation. We'll talk about what is orthodoxy. That is, what is what do we need to believe as Christians, right? And then um, what things are kind of open uh, to taste. That was the distinction I was looking for that Ron talks about. There are um, prescriptive things and then there are matters of taste. Um, and so we would argue that, um, you know, salvation through Christ alone uh, is prescriptive. That's fundamental to what Christianity is. Um, however, what type of music that you play during worship or how many hymns you sing or don't sing uh, are matters of taste. Well, within the realm of theology too, I know this may be surprising to you, um, but there there are things that are fundamental and then there are things that um, are um, that, that, in, that Christians can disagree about and still uh, fellowship together and love each other and um, shouldn't divide over. However, we live in a culture, largely in America, especially in conservative Christianity, that tends to be dogmatic over things that we shouldn't be as dogmatic about um, and, um, and sometimes miss the forest for the trees. So there are voices out there that are dominant. 
um, that are authoritative, uh, and sometimes it's that uh, it's communicated that the louder and more authoritative you sound, uh, that somehow substantiates your your view. Um, so we've talked generally enough about that, um, but for me, uh, when oftentimes when people start the discussion about uh, end times, uh, the the thing that it makes me think of honestly, right, is is the individual living in the bunker with the tinfoil hat on, right, trying to keep the government from reading their thoughts, and uh, you know, or the individual who's stockpiling because the end of the world is coming, right, and uh, unfortunately, or leave, leave it on. <laughs> I I had promised several friends that I would. Would in fact wear my tinfoil hat, and I and I did it well. Um, so, I, I, initially, I want to ask you the question: What is um, Christian eschatology? What does that big ugly word eschatology mean? Yeah, it's well, it's it's. Right, literally the words are the the words put together, right? Eschatos is Greek for last, and then logos is the word often for discourse. So there's Christology, right? All these distinctions in theology related to different subjects of study. So uh, Christian eschatology, and I note that I use the term Christian, right? Because everyone has an eschatology, whether you're a believer or not whether you, um, there are Islamic eschatologies. This is something that we're only now beginning on a kind of popular level to even think about, right? To realize other religions think about the end of the world in different ways too. And, and if you've heard, or, you know, Joel Rosenberg, I believe, has written a, a recent fiction book on the 12th Imam, right? You've heard about, some of you have heard about the 12th Imam. Well, there is a sect, right, largely Iranian, and uh, Ahmadinejad is one, who believes in the 12th Imam, the Islamic Messiah, more or less. And you'll note, if you go back to some of his speeches, at the, at the beginning and the conclusion of some of his speeches, he will say something about hastening the Mahdi. Mahdi is this, you know, so-called 12th Imam, right? Uh, who's been hidden for, for centuries and will be revealed in the last days. Right? So Islam has eschatology. They have end-time beliefs. Now, politically, how that might be important is because they actually tangibly, you know, I mean, uh, Ahmadinejad, uh, and in fact, I heard on the radio the other day, he's actually making like a documentary, right, to kind of promote his view that he believes he's one of these individuals who's going to assist in hastening, that is to make something come faster, right, the the arrival of this Messiah, right, which would include probably starting a war with Israel and things like that, right? Yeah, I don't claim to know. My one point is that eschatology isn't just something uh, related to Christians. Uh, it, it, it relates to um, how we talk about um, the future, right? Um, or, or, or if you want to look at it more pessimistically, the end, right? So eschatology can be framed in different ways. I don't think 
that the only orientation or the only way to look at the end times is to look at it in a negative way, especially from a Christian vantage point. Um, And so we'll look at the Bible, we'll look at various significant passages in the coming days um, and begin to ask questions of the text. But I guess one thing that I wanted to kind of at least initially say is that um, as a Christian, my own study and thinking and the evolution of my thinking when it comes to uh, end time stuff um, um, is hopeful. Um, as a Christian, I look forward to the to the future uh, with a, a very certain and very clear um, hope. Uh, hope in God, right? Um, the future is about God, uh, the, uh, you know, whatever the quote-unquote end times are, right? Occurring, Jesus returning, and everything being changed. I mean, that's the that's the Christian hope. That's what this kind of whole thing is about. And so, um, I don't think it always has to be framed in terms of fear and um, uh, kind of a negative orientation towards the future. I guess. Um, it's kind of a common cultural assumption in Christianity, of course I'm making a generalization, but in American evangelical Christianity, um, that would be us, we would probably fall in that pot, right? Um, this church at least. Um, there tends to be this assumption um, that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Right? Well, that, that idea is not only fed by 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 the way our news cycle is structured, but um, it's fed by a certain uh, way of reading various biblical texts and putting them together. What probably most of us don't realize is that whatever views we have... How about this? Somebody tell me what uh, some component, and you can just call it out, uh, what do you anticipate... Um, the end times to look like based on what you what you know coming in here tonight. Weather events. Okay. Wars. Okay. So pleasant. Right. So this kind of. Uh, well, it's it's images of the world devolving, right? Of things of the natural order somehow unraveling. Um, so there's that imagery. What else? Rapture. Rapture. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? When Jesus comes and all of the Christians at that time are taken away. Okay, so Christians at the time are taken away. Where are they taken? So the rapture. What else? Anything? I guess I need one of those too. (laughs) What I'm passing around to you, um, I wanted you to see, to have in your hands, what's important to me uh, is... uh, 
is, is the foundational elements that I think are most important. And we'll start with those. Subjects that fall under the category of eschatology are um, personal eschatology. That is, what happens to me individually when I die? Or what happens to you individually when you die? Right? This might include categories or uh, issues such as heaven. Hell. Well, I mean, first of all, one, what happens to you when you die? I mean, these are pretty fundamental human questions that humans have been asking for centuries. So there's personal eschatology. There's corporate or universal eschatology, what will ultimately happen to the world. There is uh, the matter of heaven and kind of our theology of heaven, our theology of hell, uh, our theology of judgment, our theology regarding to the judgment of Christ, uh, to the return of Christ and to the judgment. And then this whole notion of a rapture, millennium, these two kind of components that you may or may not have heard about before. So all those things kind of fall under this category of of Christian eschatology. Um, And we should remember that Christians since the very beginning, including the disciples, right? When when Jesus, uh, right before Jesus ascends, perhaps if you have a Bible, open to Acts chapter 2. Now, after Jesus comes, Jesus comes and does his ministry, uh, and as Jesus' ministry proceeds, he proclaims what? What's Jesus' message? Huh? Right, that's what Acts is going to tell us. What is Jesus' ministry? What is his message during his ministry? Love one another. Why? What kind of ethic is that? I mean, besides a good one or. God's one, right? There, what does Jesus proclaim? Something is near. Oh, the, the kingdom, that crazy, elusive religious concept, right? The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. So he doesn't seem to use Paul's kind of language that, that you know, have faith and be justified and then sanctified and Those are all kind of Pauline categories. Jesus runs around talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, right? which seem to be synonymous. In Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven. Elsewhere, it's the kingdom of God. So, uh, Jesus is proclaiming this message about the kingdom of God. It makes you wonder, what is the kingdom of God? Right? Well, it's the kingdom where the, or it's a kingdom by which, in which the individuals that are part of the kingdom live by a certain ethic, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Just like Olivia pointed out. Now, Jesus also begins to describe his death and uh, as we understand, dies on the cross and uh, salvifically for our sins uh, in our place and God raises him from the dead, right? Vindicating Jesus' message and work, right? He has proclaimed the coming of the kingdom. And Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, something has come upon you. What is that? Anybody remember that passage in Luke? Nope. Good guess, though. Because there's always that Holy Spirit coming upon you language. If I, this is Jesus speaking, cast out demons by the finger of God, right? That is, if what I'm doing is by the agency of God, then something has come upon you. Holy Spirit. 
kingdom, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Interesting phraseology. So Jesus proclaims the coming of the kingdom and seems to, at least in some instances, indicate the kingdom is present. So, then Jesus dies salvifically. Then Jesus is raised by God, vindicating his message. Then Jesus, in the book of Acts, chapter uh, 1, right? Uh, how does chapter, let's kind of scan through chapter 1 quickly. Where did I bring my Bible? I know I had one. No, somebody stole my Bible. No, it's probably in Case's office. Um, somebody read Acts chapter 1 who can read loud and relatively fast. In my former book, The Office, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to men and gave many convincing that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. How long? 40. Okay, keep going. And spoke about the kingdom of God. Hmm. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them a command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, and in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Hold on. So so here's the scenario, and I want you to kind of picture this graphically, right? So the disciples disperse after Jesus' crucifixion, right? It's the women that find find him, right? They go to the tomb, and then they notice, oh, Jesus is risen. He's not there, right? Big deal. So they go tell the disciples, and the message starts to go around, and then all of a sudden they start encountering the risen Jesus. Right? We have several accounts of this in, in John and Matthew, etc. So they encountered Jesus in resurrected form. right? And then the book of Acts begins with a story that wants to link it to the end of the book of Luke, right? arguably written together, two parts of this big you know, volume work. Okay? And what Acts 2 describes is that Jesus, in resurrected form, continues to teach them for 40 days, the disciples, about the kingdom of God. Now, they were in Jesus' ministry. They were with Him when He said various things along the way. Specifically, I'm thinking of what, we'll call, what we call the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24. Okay, or Mark 13 or Luke 21. It's a parallel passage. Okay, So, Jesus talks about these things that will that'll come into play in terms of what we call the end times. Right? So they have 40 days with Jesus. Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom of God. Right? And at the conclusion of this time, Jesus gives them instructions to wait on the Holy Spirit who God's going to send. He's going to empower them because they're supposed to go take the message from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? So that's the, that's the road map. And the first question is, Hey, are are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Right? So they've spent 40 days going over the kingdom of God, but clearly there is a lack of understanding. Right? I mean, it seems that the disciples are unclear, but they're really curious. That's their fundamental question. Right? So when is this going to happen? 
Is it going to happen now? Right? And Jesus responds to them. Uh, what are we, where are we at now? Verse 9, after he said this. What? Seven. Okay? So he told them, you're not permitted to know the times of the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. So Jesus completely obfuscates, right? I mean, he's asked a direct question and he just says, I'm not going to, you know, that's not the point here. How, let me tell you this. <laughs> the real, I mean, really, that, the real point is the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to do ministry, right? I can't tell you. Father has said things in his own time. I mean, that's the gist of it, right? And then, uh, after he said this, while they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud hid him from their sight. As they were staring into the sky while he was going, suddenly two men in white clothing stood near them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus... Now, who are these men? <clears throat> huh? Okay, apostles, angels. No, I'm saying who are the two men? The two men who appear. <laughs> That's the assumption. Right? We're not told. Is the is the you know, I mean obvious reading. We're we're just not told. But here's what they say. Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Okay? So this is the basis, the foundation, right, of what we'll call a belief in the literal, physical, bodily return of Jesus. Right? Now, bodily is kind of relatively relative because is Jesus in a human body? Yes and no. <laughs> yes, but he's in a resurrected body which is genuinely bodily, but is glorified in some way. Right? Huh? Right, he can pass through walls. So, I mean, you know, physiologically, <laughs> or, or in terms of physics, right, we're, we're assuming there are some elements of difference between um, the, the resurrected body and the body, but we affirm in this, uh, that, that it is genuinely... Uh, his body, that, genuine, that Jesus is, is in resurrected bodily form, right? No, no, no. Bob, don't start heresy. So, this is the foundation. This is, what, this is the belief in Jesus' literal return in the same way Jesus ascended to heaven. So, we anticipate Jesus coming from heaven, right? Sometimes. Um, right. Sometimes. Okay? So, Acts helps us with that. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. These are fun verses. So, my first question is, are we living in the last days? No? Yes? Uh, see, you're trying to read ahead. Not fair, Bob. No. So Hebrews says this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. 
But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now, the book of Hebrews makes this argument, which I've been kind of teaching through in um, the men's Sunday Sunday morning, men's Tuesday morning, 6 a.m. Bible study, which is very early for me, which some some can attest. Um, But uh, the the point that Hebrews is making, that Hebrews is conceptualizing all of time, okay, biblical history, right, in terms of then and now, okay. So they're, they're, the the author is giving us this picture that uh, here's the former times, and this includes all the ways and all the diverse ways that God spoke uh, through the prophets or through the very. I mean, He spoke through you know, Balaam's donkey or whatever and uh, spoke through all these uh, different means, right? He speaks through the prophets who act out certain uh, kind of bizarre things, right, or whatever. And all of this is considered the revelation of God. This is God revealing Himself to humanity through agency of prophets and others, right? So the author of Hebrews is saying in the, in the, in the, in the former times, God revealed Himself in many ways. But in these last days, He reveals Himself in the Son. Okay? So there's a focus from this many different ways that God has done it before to the final and ultimate revelation being the Son. Does that make sense? Okay? But the author also says that, or identifies himself as living in the last days. So my question to you is when did the last days start? Uh, I'm just willing. I'm just willing to. Say, yeah, I, I don't want to. I don't want to argue about the, the precise details. But let's just suggest that the last days have been going on since the birth of the church, at least, right? Which is helpful to think about because sometimes we get caught up in the fervor, right, of 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 identifying our ourselves uh, in terms of the end, which is not. Uh, entirely, you know, without historical precedent. I mean, groups throughout history have identified themselves as the last generation, right? Um, Most of you are uh, my age or about. And uh, how many of you, how many of you, I'm trying to be sweet, how many of you uh, remember hearing about a book, uh, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988? Anybody remember hearing about that book? It was published. And then there was another one published in 89. Right? So individuals have not... There has been no lack of Christian individuals with good hearts, sincere people who love the Lord, uh, anticipating the the end of days and telling others the same. Uh, And uh, that has gone on since the very early church. It happened... um, I mean, it, it happened all throughout the church's history, but... Uh, you know, it's uh, not uncommon in our own day, right? All these people went to church and when they found the generation had a 40 years because the Jews wanted them to end it for 40 years and then have the generation. So they took from 1948 when Israel was reborn and added 40 years to that, took seven years off and then started the last generation. Yes. Right. We're going to spend an. Maybe off on the 40 years, but now 
Perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, which brings up the next point. Yeah, well, and it, the, 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 the issue, and he's talking about Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Parallel passages. Okay? Uh, specifically, Matthew 24, which individuals try to separate from Luke 21, right? Because Luke 21 makes it explicit that it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, whereas Matthew 24 does not make that explicit. Um, the question that you're referencing is uh, how this generation is interpreted, right? Because Jesus says, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things come to pass, right? Um, so we'll spend a good amount of time working through that text, um, probably next week, anticipate. Uh, my, my point this evening is to kind of set the stage for the issues that are in play, um, because they're important. Um, you know, I, I I joke around a lot in terms of you know my tinfoil hat, but um, so the the issue of Christian eschatology is is important. Um, uh, but there are a lot of different notions floating around. There are a lot of kind of different readings of the text. Um, so that's one of the things that we have to talk about, and that is that all theological beliefs are based on what? Huh? Right, the Bible. So how do we get the Bible? And I don't mean, I I mean, I know the answer to this question on a nuanced level, but what I mean by saying that is, uh, how do we get theology from the Bible? We have the Bible. Right, so we have the book, and we believe it's God's word, and it's uh, inspired and authoritative and truthful and good for faith and practice, and all those good things. Right, it's God's word. Okay, but how do we get from the book to the belief? Oh, there's this whole process, right, of interpretation, and I'll draw. My handy dandy little glasses. There's no thrones, please. No, no thrones today. That, and that's not a, a misshapen bra. That's a, those are glasses. Those are, those are we'll draw little eyes. Just to, that's yeah, that's Sorry. <laughs> those are glasses. Perhaps that is due to me. Uh, so, point and I'm. I'm Perhaps I'm going to stop drawing. Um, hey, but I think out loud and it hurts my head. So, uh, all that's the point, right? And 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 what's even more beautiful about my illustration and kind of the double interpretation, right, is because you can look at an image and come away seeing different things. So how is it not possible that you can read a text written? 2,000 years ago in a different culture in a different language different geography right and fundamentally different worldview, right and not have to have some checks and balances in terms of what you were walking away with and saying that's what that image says or that's what that text says right so which brings up what we'll call what, what, what is called hermeneutics can anyone 
anyone tell me what hermeneutics is? Huh? Say again? Preaching? No. But but good guess. No, that would be the that would be the analogy of faith. No, nope. hermeneutics is the science and the art. It is both a science and an art. Right? The science and art of biblical interpretation. Now, it doesn't have to be biblical, right? Uh, interpretation. Uh, it could be, for instance, art, right? You interpret art or science, drawing. Hermeneutics. I'm sorry, I should write that on the write the word on the board, right? It's from the Greek word hermeneuo. Hermeneutics is the science and art of interpretation. It is scientific insofar as we attempt to employ principles. Right? Like when you do science, right? You posit a a hypothesis, and then you have some kind of structured way of trying to delineate or falsify or validate whether your hypothesis is true, right? But interpretation isn't a hard science, right? You can't test the water to determine whether, the, you know, what the pH balance is in the water and then validate or invalidate whether your hypothesis is correct. So it's scientific insofar as we develop principles to help us, right, validate our interpretation. But it's an art as well, right? Study of text is part of the humanities. Because what do we deal with when we deal with biblical interpretation? Well, we deal with possibilities versus probabilities. Now, what I mean by that is there are a lot of interpretations that are possible. The question for the biblical interpreter is to try and determine what is the most probable. Right? You all on the same page? Does that make sense? Because of the fact that we're so far removed. Right? Um, now, what do we Interpret. I mean, we interpret things all the time. We interpret newspapers, television programs, movies. Uh, we we all per, some, we we all participate in receiving information and processing that information. That is interpreting it and responding to that information in multiple mediums that we receive. Right through all these different. You know, you got your cell phone and your. You're getting text messages and emails and Facebook and, right? Well, even our own interpretation of different verses in the Bible hit us differently at different times in our lives. Yeah. We will interpret the same verse differently depending on what's going on. Right, which brings up this whole question of meaning. Right. I think the distinction that you're making, though, is um, how God speaks to us in different ways. Yeah. Perhaps. Perhaps how. Um, yeah. Would you? Would you? Would you claim that? You know what? 
Isaiah 53 or whatever means to you at a certain point in your life uh, necessarily is is, an, is a some type of um, normative reading of the text. I don't know that a lot of people would make that claim. Does that make sense? But what's confusing sometimes is how we read the text and then what we consider authoritative. But I don't want to get off point as much as just suggesting that we all participate in this act of interpreting. We do it every day in a number of ways. But we, we don't seem to focus on the fact that we do it when we come to the Bible. It, it, it's kind of odd. Like, how many of you are, are aware that if you were to turn on uh, Fox News Channel that you would get a certain orientation to the news? How, how many of you are aware that if you were to turn on MSNBC you would get a certain orientation to the news. Like that's real that's, you don't have to think hard about it. So why is it that we have that we struggle with this notion that different viewpoints regarding the Bible don't have don't come from different orientations. But yeah, we are all trying to find the truth and I'm not suggesting in any way that anyone's not. All I'm saying though is that I think sometimes we just tacitly assume, uh, and you'll hear this, right? What's well, just in the Bible? You just need to read the Bible. And it's right there. It's, it's plain. Well, it's not plain to everybody. Right? So are you, are you, are you going to kind of stick your head in the sand and say, well, it's plain to me, so if it's not plain to you, then you're just wrong? <laughs> Which is kind of what sometimes we've done. Uh, we've done this to people. <laughs> You know, and is end time stuff one of those areas that we really need to do that with? It's a good question. I'm not attempting to answer the questions for you, but helping to problematize it, right? To make it a little more difficult so that we appreciate the significance of it, right? That there should be humility involved in the process. Doesn't mean we shouldn't interpret the Bible or that we shouldn't believe strongly in a certain reading of various texts. I think that's all well and good. You know, but at the end of the day, do we have enough humility to say that there are certain things we need to hold con- you know, strong conviction about that are essential to Christianity and some that are perhaps outside of the bounds of, of, of what we need to fight about? Now, here's why I say that. Eschatology is the, is the most... Um, I've been trying to think of ways to, to try and make this illusion. Out of all theology, in my view... Okay, so-called end time stuff is the, is the most loose. Okay? There are some things that are very foundational from the beginning. I passed around these two creeds. Sometimes we read these in church here. And I'm not interested in the whole creed, but what I am interested in, the Apostles' Creed dates back to the 2nd century-ish and uh, uh, is a confession that, that, that the earliest church uh, identified with. And the Nicene Creed is from about 325. Okay? Uh, so I've, high, I've, I've bolded what I think is important. All right? and so it talks about I believe in God the Father. So it's a confession of what the church is believing at this time. They're reciting it publicly. Now, help me delineate how many elements here you see about the end time. And I've highlighted them, but let's see if we can pluck them out. Okay? So from the Apostles' Creed, okay? 
uh, under Pontius Pilate was crucified. We're talking about Jesus. So here's what we believe. We believe he was crucified, he was dead, and buried. He descended into hell, which is interesting because we don't we, we cut that out most of the time now when we say this. <coughs> um, if you haven't noticed, we cut that section out. The third day, he did what? He rose again, right? So here's the belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Very fundamental. He ascended into heaven. There's the ascension, Acts chapter 2. Uh, or 1, excuse me. And he sits, I, I love King James English, he sitteth on the right hand of God the Father, right? So he's been, he's been vindicated. He sits at God's right hand. And from there he shall come to judge the quick. Now what's the quick? This is Old English. The living. Right? He'll come to judge the living and the dead. So what do we unpack from that? How many beliefs can you pull out of that? Now, I'm not as interested. Obviously, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus and we believe in His ascension. So beyond that, I'm just talking about from the last several clauses, what do we draw out? Yeah, he sits at the right hand of God on the Father. From, from this, that's what I'm interested in. That and what follows. So from there, he'll come, right? A belief in the return. Right? And he'll judge. Okay, who will he judge? The living and the dead. Which suggests that the dead will somehow be resurrected. Okay. Uh, I take it that and, in and my order here is do what? Living in the dead means everybody. Yeah, all of humanity. Right? So, uh, resurrection from the dead. This is both the uh, righteous and the unrighteous. Okay? Obviously, you should the dead when you think of deceased are already being with them. So, what party? The deceased, the dead, the past, are already with Jesus.
So, uh, Abraham is justified, that is, put in right relationship with God, or saved, by faith. But uh, Jesus seems to allude in the Gospels that no one has ascended to God except the Son of Man. Right? The Son of Man is the first to ascend. So the assumption is, and the Hebrew Bible has this concept uh, in various terms of Sheol, surely you've heard of this. Uh, sometimes you'll hear the word Tartarus. Tartarus. I may be spelling that wrong. Um, but uh, Sheol, and then, of course, the, the imagery of the grave or the pit, right? Brought me up out of the pit, or, you know, when I go into the grave, those kind of expressions. Uh, Sheol simply means the underworld, or the place of the dead, right? So where do the dead go when they die? Dun, 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 dun. Now, I would argue philosophically that heaven is not up and hell is not down. That's just... Uh, that, but, but, I don't, but I don't know that that matters in our discussion. It's helpful to think of heaven up and at least for us to talk about. Right? So, uh, individuals, when they die, go into some type of holding pattern, if you will, or the underworld, Sheol, the grave, the pit. Right? What happens to them? Um, well, I mean, besides the fact that it's kind of elusive and we don't know, um, there seems to be, uh, at least there's this distinction that Jesus makes in the Gospels, right? When uh, you have this thing that we don't know if it's a parable or not because it's not prefaced. Anyway, this is uh, Lazarus and the rich man. So uh, Lazarus uh, is a is a poor guy uh, who is passed by the rich man every day. The rich man doesn't pay any attention to him. And Lazarus is suffering, dying. He's got dogs licking him, right? And then they both die, right? And Lazarus is in paradise, or well, Lazarus is, is 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 in the underworld, right? But th- but there seems to be a divide in the underworld, right? There's there's a place where it's not so bad and then a place where you're being punished. And the rich man is, is in punishment. He's in the fire, in torment, right? And he's so hot that he, say, he yells over to Lazarus, right? So the image here is that you can talk, right? Back and forth between these two kind of chamber things, right? Again, we're using language to try and describe things that are kind of beyond our ability to conceptualize. Remember, the Bible comes in language. Language portrays reality doesn't necessarily always correspond. So, um, so the, the rich man is in torment and says, Lazarus, dip the you know, tip of your finger into uh, the water and, and you know, touch it to my tongue and so I'll have some relief. Right? And, uh, and, and so the whole point of the Jesus story is that he can't. Right? That, and, and, and the twist, um, well, point being, there seem to be these two kind of compartments. One where individual, and this is what's often referred to as Abraham's bosom. Okay? Um, so, arguably, and again, this is speculative, uh, as most of this is, uh, this is speculative, but arguably, uh, Abraham's bosom, listed as A, right? this is where Moses may go, where... Ezekiel, right? The biblical people that are good folks, that are covenant people, that are believers, as it were. Does that make sense? That's where Abraham goes. And then when Jesus comes and dies, where does Jesus go? Well, we don't know that either, right? But the assumption of the early church is that he descends into hell, right? Tricks the devil and takes back all the devil's authority, right? Which 
helps us to kind of conceptualize where he understood the early church to be. Or, I mean, the early church kind of had a ransom theory of the atonement, um, which is different, but we won't. I'm not going to get lost in it. The point is, uh, so Jesus descends and leads all these individuals right to paradise. Does that make sense? So the, the theory is uh, that these individuals before the cross are saved by virtue of the cross because of their faith in God's revelation, wherever that is at the time. Does that make sense? Okay. So they're, they're saved forward-looking in whatever God has revealed at that point, which ultimately will be Christ. Okay? Well, we're saved backward-looking right? in what Jesus has already done. We're just on a different side of the cross. Does that make sense? Follow? So the dead go to the place of the dead, and then the ones who are righteous are let out by Jesus. You have several passages that kind of allude to stuff like this that are very difficult, right? Like in Second Peter, maybe First Peter, First or Second Peter, one of the Peters, uh, you know, is this uh, passage about Jesus descending and preaching to uh, uh, those that were in chains, right, and proclaiming uh, liberty to the captives and this kind of stuff. And it's just very difficult to figure out what it is exactly that Peter's talking about. Does that make sense? But some have kind of built up this notion that. Uh, uh, you know, Jesus descends and proclaims liberty to, to those in Abraham's bosom and leads them uh, to righteousness with God. Because post-cross, right, those who believe, right, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Does that make sense? Question. Is this where the theory of purgatory in the Catholic Church comes from? No. Well, I mean, perhaps. I don't know the origins of all Catholic theology. Purgatory, though, is a little different in orientation. Purgatory is 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 a, is a place you go post death that everybody goes, and kind of you have to kind of do stuff to improve your way out because we're all at different stages. It, it, it's different. Is that fair? Okay. Can I ask you So those yep. people that rose again when Christ died mm-hmm. were just on the earth living, and they had to die again. I don't think I'm understanding you correctly. When I say raised, I don't mean I don't mean Were some, didn't some people come out of the grave when Christ Yeah, died? that's the whole, the whole Matthew passage completely unexplainable. I have no comment. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I want to you know. Yeah, yeah, no. The end of Matthew when the dead folks are walking around. Uh, yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fair to acknowledge when we just don't know. I think that's the most helpful thing I've ever learned, right? Is that it's okay to say, I don't know. Uh, but it's a good question. The truth is, we really it's difficult to understand. Um, the assumption is that these resurrected folks are taken with Jesus. Or, I really don't know. I mean, I don't think they go on. What? I just assume they were... Resurrected and they they died again like Lazarus. Yeah, um, I don't know that I would go that direction, but I don't know why. <laughs> I don't have any good reason not to. How about that? Um, which is why I just totally punt on that one. Um, so what we're getting out of the things that we're reading that I left over here. So the Apostles' Creed gives us 
Jesus' return, Jesus coming in judgment, there's going to be a resurrection that's general, right? General resurrection of all. Those that are living and those that are dead. Okay? And, um, and then, life everlasting, right? So this thing we'll call the eternal state. This helps us to distinguish uh, the state after this state, which is not eternal. Huh? Is that creative? Theologians are very thoughtful. So the eternal state refers to what we will later distinguish as heaven and hell. Does that make sense? The afterlife. With the are they getting that like from Revelation 20? Um, yes. And say First Corinthians 15. Um, that would be a big one on the resurrection. But my point is, in terms of how Christian, and this is what's most important. So if you hear nothing else, or if you're confused and lost, because I'm confused. Uh, here's here's the big point. Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, has affirmed these four things from the Apostles' Creed on. Okay? You'll notice these elements are again found in the Nicene Creed. On the third day Jesus rose in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. Right? So, uh, And then at the end, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Okay? All of those things fit somehow within these four elements. Okay? So what is basic to Christianity about eschatology? What you need to believe to be a faithful, confessing Christian? Um, not that everybody has to have all their theology right. But um, is these four things. Jesus Christ is going to return, literally, physically, and bodily. Jesus Christ is the one who's been charged to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ is going to participate in the general resurrection of all people, living and dead. Righteous and unrighteous. Everybody. And so arguably, this list is not in any chronological order. Perhaps resurrection goes before judgment. Right. Uh, In fact, it does. But these four elements, without numbers, are the, are the important point. And the eternal state, right? That there is something beyond, and it's good for Christians. Right? That is what Christianity has always believed. Who the Antichrist is, uh, when the, quote, rapture is, how the millennium looks, um, are not matters that are pertinent to orthodoxy. So if you get nothing else, out of anything that I have to say, I want you to know that these are the fundamental things. This is what's really important. And what day or what year or what uh, or whatever um, may may be important, may be fun to think about, but it's 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 not a matter to divide over. It's not a matter to separate from other Christians over, right? So if you run into so and so your friend and neighbor who goes to another Christian church and they don't believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, that's okay. They don't, they don't believe the Bible any less than you. They don't... Is that, this is important for me to say because this was important for me to learn. 
because when I was a, not that I'm like a super old Christian but uh, when I was very new in my faith and uh, began to actually study stuff uh, I was deeply influenced by people who were uh, who spoke very authoritatively uh, and uh, and their view was the right view and the only view and uh, and then I kind of learned to think for myself and to read the text for myself uh, and so what I want you to, to get is that what's important and what's worth dividing over right if it comes down to it what's worth fighting about are these things right Jesus returned the resurrection of the dead judgment and, and, and the eternal state. That there is a life beyond. That's it. Now, there are a lot of other things that are involved, and so we're going to talk about those. We will spend the rest of our time uh, doing that. But I wanted to lay out what is orthodoxy, uh, because it's so, so important that we keep that in mind as we go forward. Um, because believe me, you can. All you have to do is, is type in end times in Google, right? And there's 50 million people who have the you know the day and the hour, or you know, or, or all these websites on who's leading who astray, and uh, you know, and it, it, besides being mind-boggling, it's rather obnoxious um, because I don't know. Um, how much a lot of those, the, it, it's very easy to become confused. Right, no man knows the day or the hour. But but again, uh, there are a lot of people who claim to know the way. Right? They may not. They'll admit we don't know the day and the hour, but uh, it's going to be soon, and we know it because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, there have been a lot of generations of that. Right. All right. So it can be confusing. So we'll begin to work through some of that. Um, several things I want to put in your mind. Okay, uh, We have mentioned this um, concept. For instance, the word church uh, in the book of Revelation doesn't appear after chapter 3, verse 22. And it, and it doesn't appear again until chapter 22 in the book of Revelation. Okay. Now, that one uh, fact has been used to make the claim that, therefore, the church has been raptured during this period in the book of Revelation. Okay. Now, that's a matter of interpretation. Right? Just think about what's being claimed. Okay, you got a book. It's got what, twenty-two chapters? Okay, thereabouts. And so here's the argument that's being made. XYZ word, right, is used up until this point in the book and isn't used again until this point in the book. Therefore, this concept doesn't exist during this period in the book. This is one of the arguments. I'm just putting it out there. I'm not suggesting one way or another whether that's correct or not. 
Well, it's the word ecclesia, but the word church. Uh, so another one, right? I'm, I'm pointing out some of the difficulties as teasers because these, these are the things we'll wrestle with. Okay? Is that fair? Uh, in Matthew 24, all right, which is uh, what yeah, you were alluding to earlier, right? Jesus uh, says, "Verily or truly, uh, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all." these things happen regarding the, the things described in that chapter. Therefore, right, uh, one could make the statement, uh, therefore this passage has nothing to do with the future. Uh, because that generation passed away and those things, some of which, did not happen. And now, uh, we are, or did happen, and now we are in, uh, there. how about this? Let me suggest this. There are groups that will tell you that this generation referred to the generation Jesus spoke to, which would kind of be the natural sense of understanding it. Um, and therefore, all those things occurred, and now we're all living in the eternal state. Welcome to heaven. Now, that's full, that's what's called, that's, you know, I'm using it as a foil, but it is a genuine view. Um, now, there are a lot of individuals who think that it did refer to that generation, at least in part, but not in total, uh, and then, uh, which, which is an entirely orthodox view. Um, Acts chapter 2, okay? going back to this concept of the uh, kingdom, right? kingdom of God has come. This Jesus whom you crucified has been made both Lord and Christ. In this sermon, Peter unambiguously refers to Jesus as a fulfillment of something with a Davidic ring to it. So is the ascension, that is, right? So we drew our little picture of Jesus ascending into heaven, subsequent to the cross. And the earliest confessions say Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and sits at the at the right hand of God. So let me ask you a question. When does Jesus assume this prophetic Davidic throne? This is important. When does the kingdom of God start? This is what Christians will debate. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. So we've got timeline here. We've got Jesus' crucifixion, then his resurrection, the 40 days, right? And then his ascension. Now, draw my throne. The question is, is Jesus sitting on the Davidic throne now? Peter seems to say, this Jesus whom you crucified is now both Lord and Christ. So is Jesus ruling and reigning as the Davidic king? Has the kingdom of God begun? In part. My understanding is he was son of God at the beginning of time. Yeah, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the kingdom. When does the kingdom start? Does it start during Jesus' ministry? Does it start in his ascension? Or... Or, this seems to be the popular opinion, which probably most of you have been influenced by and don't even realize is one vantage point. Or, he's not sitting on the Davidic throne. And the kingdom is really this concept down here we're going to call the millennium. 
right? Which is Revelation chapter 20. Okay? So, this is where Jesus will come back to earth and literally sit on the throne, right? And literally sit on the throne in the temple in Jerusalem, right? Because, right, some would argue, he has to be literally on the throne physically in Israel in order for this to be the case. I don't know. Where is it referred to as the Davidic throne? You mentioned you said the Davidic throne, meaning David's throne. Right, which is why in our last 25 minutes we're going to start talking about the biblical covenants. Okay, because the covenants are going to undergird the rest of our understanding. Okay, so now we're finally going to get to the meat of what it is that we're going to discuss. Does that make sense? To give you a preview of what we're doing, I spent the first part helping to draw this picture that the that issues at hand are hermeneutical. They are interpretive. Okay? This is not a question of who, who believes rightly. Okay? If you believe those four things, you believe rightly. The question now is, as a Christian, as a Bible-believing, Scripture-loving follower of Jesus, right? can we come together and wrestle with these texts and see what we come out with? Right. What is the most probable versus possible? All these views are possible. Which one is most probable? That's the judgment that you'll have to make. And I'm not going to make it for you. I mean, at the end or whatever, I'll tell you where I'm at, which probably surprised some of you. But it's not my intention in any way to create little disciples of my view. Okay? I want you to see what... Uh, to you, you to interact with the primary texts that are involved. <coughs> and then, with some of the systems, this would be a system of understanding. Okay. So here's the way I structured the class. Right? Uh, week one, interpretation. Week two, scripture. Week three, uh, week three, Systems, right? These are the big. This is when I'll have all my little charts to hand out of these different views. The where Jesus is, right? When Jesus comes down, right? Or when the rapture is, right? And the tribulation. <laughs> See, we can we can start writing all kinds of charts. So, so that's kind of how we'll move through. And these, it's inductive, right? I'm taking you. To the issues, the philosophical issues to begin with, and then to scripture, right? And and then to the different systems that are put out there, to the different interpretations, schools of thought, right? And you'll have to ask yourself the question, right? Which one is more true to scripture? Which one best, or perhaps a better way to phrase it, which one best represents? a good interpretation of these passages. Does that make sense? Are we all good with that? Well, week four, I'm planning on us all being raptured. So, so... Week four is No, I, I anticipate... So, I, I'm, I've left week four open to a little bleed over of several other things. Because I figure our discussions will carry us a little bit 
farther than I can plan for, as a little bit they have already. So let's talk a little bit about the foundations of uh, what will be um, New Testament understanding in terms of covenants. Okay? We talked about this a little when we talked about the whole concept of the eternal state right? um, or, and the kingdom of God. I, I think we sufficiently uh, identified what is Jesus' primary message. What is Jesus' primary message in his ministry? The kingdom of God, right? Is the kingdom of God present? Is the kingdom of God future? Right? Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Right? It's one thing. But if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of heaven isn't going to come upon you. Is entirely different. Right? But we have both. So is the kingdom present? Is the kingdom future? How is the kingdom present? And in what respects is the kingdom future? And then, this whole David thing, right? Um, that's important. But, so, let's look at the... the there are three major covenants um, that I want to talk about. Uh, that, uh, well, I mean, perhaps we could include Noah, but, but for the sake of time, we won't. So, here's what we're dealing with in terms of the Bible's history. Some of you have seen my little chart before. But if we're just going to have a long timeline, okay? In terms of Israel's history, right, God makes a covenant first after Noah with who? Who? Abraham. Abraham, right? Abram. And this occurs in Genesis, uh, what, 12, 15, and 17, right? And what is included in this promise? Ah, land. This is going to be a key issue in our discussion, Right? So, in the Abrahamic covenant, there is this whole issue of land. What else is there? Descendants, descendants right? And what are descendants? Progeny, which become tribes, which become a nation, right? So, nations will come from you and anything else? And kings. Kings will come from nations and kings. Right? So, nations, kings, uh, kings, and what's the uh, one really important part that we haven't mentioned? Do we need to look? No guesses? talking about God and Abraham. Well, what does God promise Abraham? I will be your God. God. And you will be hey, these things we just right? So, fundamental to the Abrahamic covenant is this unique relationship that God is going to have with Abraham and his descendants. Okay? So, God singles out an individual, makes his special relationship with him, a covenant, enters into this uh, unbreakable covenant with Abraham, right, and makes a number of promises to him that he'll give him land flowing with milk and honey and nations and kings uh, and, and descendants, right, um, and will be his God and they'll be his people. And, what else? What's the point? Why does God make a covenant with Abraham? Show the world. God. 
make you a blessing to the world, right? God is going to uh, utilize this covenant relationship of being Abraham's God and Abraham's descendants being his people by uh, using this nation to bless uh, the whole earth. So, is it uh, exclusive in scope, or is it universal in scope? Seems rather universal, right? Um, there's inclusion in the covenant and exclusion. That's kind of part of the way that it starts. But uh, in terms of the vision for this covenant, right? How these covenant people are to affect? Uh, it, it wasn't just um, just for them. God didn't just create a holy huddle in the ancient Near East. The holy huddle, right, was supposed to be pointed outward in some way. So, we have the Abrahamic covenant who promises this. Then we have, who's next? What's the next big covenant? Nope. Who comes before David? Moshe. Moses, right? So, we have Abraham, and Abraham has who? <laughs> Abraham has Isaac, right? Or Isaac is some promise, and, and then Isaac has Jacob. Jacob is also named Israel, and Jacob has how many sons? By how many wives? Three, four, two, maybe three. I could be wrong. Oh, there it is. Is there four? I don't even know this. Nope. You're right. I didn't remember. <laughs> See? We'll, we'll ask the pastor. He knows. You're going to have to hire her. You're going to have to hire her. So, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob is called Israel. Israel has, loosely through several women, 12 children, which become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Okay, so by the end of Genesis, we have a nation. As that proceeds, thanks for coming. No, it's all good. As that proceeds, uh, then we get into Egypt. We come up out of Egypt in the Exodus, which we're following in our in, in Ron's sermon series, and we come out of Exodus at the Passover. We're led through the Red Sea into the Promised Land, wilderness, and we wander, and God gives somebody what? The Ten Commandments is part of the covenant, right? Ten Commandments is the part that we know that we think of most most frequently, right? But there's more to it. Um, there's kind of a whole arrangement there. Um, the Mosaic Covenant, right? And this covenant primarily pertains to what? Well, it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of debate about this, right? Uh, but it includes a very clear law uh, and it includes promises as all covenants typically do and also uh, curses or judgments right? blessings and curses this type of language we're familiar with and um, it pertains kind of to Israel doing what? Why does Israel need to obey it? So the devil lives. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. So you can choose life. 
What happens if they disobey? I mean, besides kind of, you know, I mean, I don't want the litany of the boils and, you know, all that. But my question is, what happens if, if they disobey on a grand scale? They'll get evicted, right? They'll get evicted from the land. Right? You get your eviction notice when you don't obey God. So, um, that, that, at least it has some, something to do uh, with the whole land issue. Um, And again, the land that they're inheriting under Moses, or really under the leadership of Joshua and Caleb when they enter into the land, is the land that was promised to who originally? Moses? Abraham, right? So there's some relation between the covenant. There's some type of continuity. How much continuity, right, is in question, but there's some relationship there. We've got to wrestle with how the relationship works. So the Mosaic Covenant has something to do, one, with the next step in God's moving His people along. Because behind this, at least from our vantage point, we at least have this perspective that what we'll call progressive revelation. Right? That as time moves on, I can't even spell. I'm going to abbreviate. What is progressive revelation? Can anybody tell me? I would argue that's one of the best answers. You don't get it all up front. Right? Progressive revelation is God is going to reveal stuff incrementally. God had God didn't front load everything on Abraham or Moses or David. Right? And the people of God, kind of like us, are called to follow God in faith, you know, having some semblance of what's to come. Uh, but not having everything entirely mapped out necessarily. Perhaps we do, um, but we wouldn't argue that Abraham did, right? Or that Moses necessarily did. Um, so the people of God through history are kind of brought along this wider path. I mean, that's what we believe as Christians God has done with Israel, is bring them along as a nation. In fact, that imagery is used in the prophets, right? That God is kind of like their mother, or God, you know, that's wooing them along. There's a number. Perhaps I should use the prophet imagery. Um, so the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and they enter into the land and they live by the law. And now we've got the temple structure or the tabernacle structure and some type of formalized cultic practice. Not cult like kick you out of church cult, but cult like the the group of religious practice. So we've got this, this, this kind of um, ingrained set of religious practices that help us to worship Yahweh. Yahweh has a tabernacle and a place where God's presence is, God's special presence is, and we've entered into the, you know, we begin to take conquest and we begin to enter into the land. Okay? And then we decide, and the story's more winding than that, but we have a series, and we move from being what kind of people? What kind of people are we when we're tribal and live in the desert? Nomadic. We're nomadic, right? And then once we get a land and we start to build cities, we become what? Nation. Well, it's a nation, civilized. We begin to have like little township-ish areas. I, you know, I don't want to give you some type of idea that they had some type of industrial revolution. Cause they, I wouldn't argue that they did. So they're still kind of tribal, but, but they're settling in their land. So we're, we're becoming a very different type of people group. 
Right, whereas we were kind of mo moving around a lot, living in tents, now we're going to build stationary dwelling places. Now we're going to try and cultivate the land because we're planning on staying here. Right? So it's a different lifestyle altogether. And then we kind of get jealous of other nations and ask God for a king. Right? And the first one we get is Saul. And how does he work out? <laughs> he starts off good. He starts off good. It kind of goes downhill a little bit. Uh, and then God picks David, right? And um, David winds up being um, the worst king in Israel's history. No, the best king, right? The one that Israel will always look back to. The one that Israel will always, uh, that, that will kind of symbolize Israel's glory days. Uh, the, you know, Reagan for Republican. The... JFK for Democrats, you know, these kind of, these they are, these iconic figures, the Michael Jordan, if you're a sports fanatic, right? So, um, so these iconic figures, David is that iconic figure. The empire, the Israelite nation is at its greatest expanse uh, during this period. Uh, it, under, it, it experiences its greatest prosperity. Now, most importantly, God does something when it comes to David. David, through the prophet, interacts with God and says he wants to do what? Right. He says, I want to build you a house. And what is God's response? Keep going. Anything else that you recollect? Huh? Right, right, right. I'm going to build you a house. Right is the response. So David says, I'm going to build you a house, God. Right, And what does David mean by house? Temple. Okay. And then God says, no, 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 I'm going to build you a house. Now, so uh, David to God, right, temple. But God to David, what does house mean? Because it's a plan of work. I mean, is God going to build David a temple? What did you say? Lineage, right? A house, right? Which in the ancient Near East is a dynasty. A succession of kings. Okay? A Davidite throne. And, and it's going to go on forever and ever. Right? Your son's going to build me a temple... Right, but we get this language of the Davidite dynasty lasting forever and ever and ever, perpetually. Okay? Now, perhaps later, as the progress, as the progress of Revelation continues, perhaps later this will be focused in an individual David, David Davidic king. Um, but at least at the point in the narrative in Samuel, the play on words that we're getting is. I want to build you a temple. No, no, no. I'm going to build you a house. You're not going to build me a house. You know, I mean, there's more to the interaction than that. But that's the gist of it. Right? Um, and that's how it becomes exceptionally important uh, for us is that the um, Davidic covenant um, is the one to which uh, the Davidic covenant shapes the expectation of the New Testament. What I mean by that is 
that as Israel's history kind of moves along, okay, uh, after um, David is who? Solomon, and Solomon does build the temple, and then Solomon, after uh, his reign, what happens to the uh, nation? Yeah, the nation falls away, and then what happens to the nation itself? Huh? Not yet. After Babylon, after Assyria? No, we're before Assyria. You know your history so good. You're not talking about the split. I am talking about the split. I'm sorry, why you got to yell at me? Right? So, I'm not searching for anything. Authoritatively. The split! Carries them off in 722, and then and them is who? Which which part? There's the northern kingdom, which is also known as Israel, Israel and then the southern nation, which is known as Judah. Judah, and they they are ultimately carried off by another nation, Babylon in 586. Okay, here's the point of all this because I don't want to completely get lost in our last five minutes. After this, these folks don't come back, and they're deported to the to, to the end of the Assyrian Empire. And we don't see them formally come back, at least as an organized group. Okay? Represented in about ten tribes. Uh, Judah, southern kingdom, uh, where is the temple? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Judah, the southern kingdom. And who, what kind of king is on the throne? A, a Davidic king, right? This is where the Davidic king is. And this lasts through three waves of deportation into 586, when this temple is destroyed, and ultimately, at least all the elites and leadership and most of the people who have anything are carried away okay, into Babylon. Right? And um, Now, here's the question. Once we come back uh, to the land, we're going to get sent back to the land circa you know, 550, 530. We'll reestablish the... Somebody have a date? Yeah. yeah, but we rebuilt the temple in 515. That's where I'm willing to hang my hat. Okay? So the temple's rededicated and rebuilt and, and completed in 515. Okay? Uh, now we come back and rebuild this temple, and now we're in, is this the first temple? Second. Okay. But what's the important part? Where's the Davidic king? Because we're subjected to another nation. Right? Who's it that sends us back? It's Persia. Persian sends us back. So we're under Persia, and then Persia falls to Greece, and Greece uh, ultimately gets split up uh, among some generals after Alexander the Great, and they're going to fight for a while until Rome. Right? So we go through this succession, uh, this period, with the temple rebuilt. But we don't. We no longer have our own kingdom. We no longer have a king. The best we're going to get is a Davidic governor. And the prophets kind of envision, begin to envision a Davidic king. Um, and you know, perhaps um, if 
Zechariah. Uh, anyway, one of them uh, envisions Zerubbabel, I think it's Isaiah, envisions Zerubbabel as the Lord's signet ring. Uh, as, as, because uh, he's a he's a Davidite, but we never get independence and we never have a king. And so, moving into the period of Jesus, when Rome is in power, we still don't have a Davidic king. And so, the question when Jesus comes on the scene is, uh, you know, what? And this is now when we have this kind of notion of a Messiah, right? And what is a Jewish understanding of Messiah? That some kind of Davidite, perhaps a military figure who's going to lead lead us in a revolt against the Romans, perhaps a, perhaps a religious leader who's going to you know create religious reforms and God's going to vindicate us uh, in another way and overthrow the the you know empires that are kind of uh, subjugating us, right? So there's a number of different different kind of concepts floating around, but it's that issue of the, David, the, the promise to David, the eternal kingdom that's in play. And it's this to which Jesus, this world in which Jesus comes. And so you read Jesus' ministry in that context. And so every time that people are alluding to him being the son of David, that's a rather political and religious and significant spiritual kind of <coughs> title to be throwing around. Um, so then, in terms of eschatology, in terms of end times, right? When we look at the, the passages next week, and we'll start with the Olivet Discourse, um, uh, Matthew 24, uh, we're going to be asking ourselves one, and one of the issues is when does the kingdom of God begin, right? And in what sense? Because I think we would affirm that the kingdom of God did begin with Jesus' ministry and death and resurrection in terms of salvation. Uh, but when, uh, but but, do we anticipate a future literal type of geopolitical kingdom uh, on Earth? Does that have to happen? That's a that's a that's a legitimate question. Does Scripture necessitate that Jesus return physically to the Earth and sit on a real throne like that chair in Jerusalem and rule in order for? God's promise to David to be true. That's the question. That's the question. That's one of the questions. So we'll tease out these questions next week. Are there any questions questions from you? Yes, ma'am. Next week the speaker who's going to talk about Israel and US relations is going to be here on Wednesday night. Are you going to get to choose between? No. No, is that is that Wednesday? I thought it was Thursday. The twentieth. The twentieth. Is it really? I thought it was. You're right. It is Wednesday. Um. Ron, what am I going to do? You were on the schedule first. It's up to you. Um. How about you give me your email and I'll decide and send an email this week. I'd probably go ahead and do it and then do it anyway, or put it forward. It. I mean, well, it's up to them if they want. I mean, how many more weeks do you want to go? We we only schedule four, so. Give me your give me your email and I will contact you this week. Odds are we will probably still have class. And 
And as a parting gift, here I am. I have that. And as a parting gift, I'll give you my little diagram. So you didn't have to. No, Rob's copyrighted that, so y'all don't try to sell it and make money on it. <laughs> I get, I get passionate. I'm sorry. The original artwork is in the next one. Olivia's over there copying things. I was going to tell you, I learned a lot of you from you. Actually, you're the girl in high school that's making copies of things. She was burning before you could burn. All right. Um, let's. Uh, can I pray for us? That would be good. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity uh, to uh, come together as faithful Christians and seek greater understanding and seek to uh, be encouraged and uh, interpret your scriptures. We, we affirm, Lord, that uh, what the church has always affirmed, that you uh, are coming literally and physically and bodily, that you will resurrect all of humanity, both the living and the dead, uh, that ultimately you will be judge and that somehow and however it looks, we will all enter into the eternal state, uh, whether that's in uh, the, the blessed presence or the presence of judgment. We pray, God, that you would help us to uh, not focus so much on um, trivial matters, but to focus on loving you, being faithful to you, and uh, reaching the world so that they can enjoy your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen.